But now seed patents. This is the this is a thorny issue. Seed patents incentivize innovation and research. However, they pose the thorny issue of potentially depriving people of the right to food. Expensive designer seeds may price small producers out of the market and, and result in an, a monopoly of uh, factory farming. And this could drive uh, traditional uh, farmers out of the market in, in poorer countries. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective addressing important societal issues. Hello and welcome to The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. On this episode, I'd like to talk to you about our food supply, specifically organic food, genetically modified organisms, and patenting the food supply. So GMOs, genetically modified organisms, they use cross-species gene transfers uh, to bring desirable traits into living organisms that would otherwise take extremely long to generate through traditional cross-breeding and selection processes. Now, because of the scale of investment necessary to do this research and bring these traits into the, into the new organisms and to test them, governments have allowed patenting of these and other organisms, and that has impacts into um, the sovereignty of, of farmers and the right to food in poor countries. Farmers licensing these organisms uh, to grow crops are forced to buy new seeds every year. Uh, so think about the implications of that. If they don't have the money, then they can't propagate their own seeds. They're, they're out of luck. Or if the, the price goes up, they're out of luck. Now, organic food has uh, emerged as a blowback, I think, against the uh, industrial uh, farm, food farming. And it specifies a set of natural processes that are meant to maintain biological diversity and soil health. And this sounds really good. So, who is right and who is evil? This is a highly polarized debate. If you wade into the internet uh, chat rooms on these things and the social media. There's a lot of name-calling, uh, doxing of uh, opponents on social media, lawsuits. Uh, and in the real world, there's burning of experimental crops, uh, suing of farmers using patented seeds. It's a contentious issue, and that's why it's a prime target for the rational view. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please comment, like, and share it to your friends. Organic producers rely on natural substances and physical, mechanical, or biologically based farming methods to the fullest extent possible. Now this sounds like it encompasses just about everything, but it doesn't. There are rules that prevent them from using certain things. As for organic meat, Regulations require that animals are raised in living conditions accommodating their natural behaviors, like the ability to graze on pasture. They're fed 100% organic feed and forage, and not administered antibiotics or hormones. Organic production, therefore, requires much more land use to produce the same amount of food, and thereby increases the cost of uh, said products. Of course, there are also some good points to it, uh, as I mentioned before. Uh, increased feeding of grass and alfalfa for cattle increases their omega-3 fatty acids, and these are thought to be healthy and good for your brain. 
And use of antibiotics in livestock has been highlighted by the World Health Organization as contributing to the antibiotic resistance in bacteria. And that's bad. We want to minimize antibiotic use as much as possible and limit it. And in the past, farmers would just add uh, subclinical levels of antibiotics to livestock feed and see improvements in growth in, in their cattle and their chickens. Organic uh, outlaws that. However, uh, the rest of the world has caught up and the use of antibiotics for growth promotion purposes was banned in the European Union after 2006. And in the United States, they uh, eventually caught up in the year 2017, uh, where it was banned by the FDA, or the Food and Drug Administration. What are the impacts of organic food um, on our diet? Uh, if you eat organic food, what are you getting? Are you getting... Uh, I mean, the, the proponents say you're getting stuff that tastes better, it's got uh, less toxins in it, uh, it's healthier for your body, and it's great for the environment. So, what are the real impacts? Well, there are studies that have shown small to moderate increases in certain nutrients, but they're not always reproducible from one crop to the next, so it's somewhat controversial. Uh, there have been some good studies that have shown there's lower cadmium content in organically produced grains, and that's a heavy metal, which is not good for you, uh, but not in fruits and vegetables. There have been other taste tests, blind taste tests uh, of organic and traditional farming products, and people couldn't tell the difference between the two in blind taste tests. So not all of the claims, I think, hold water, but there are good things. Now, uh, more about the rules of organic production. Prohibited substances in organic production include uh, most synthetic fertilizers and pesticides. Now, of course, pesticides that sterilize the soil are bad for biodiversity. The soil is the basis of farming, and the microbial ecosystem in the soil helps the plants to grow. There's a a symbiotic relationship between the microbes and the plant root structure which uh, feeds nutrients into the plants if you have a healthy soil. And if pesticides are broad-spectrum antibiotics effectively that sterilize the soil, then they kill that and you're dependent then on synthetic fertilizers to grow your plants. Uh, and your soil is dead effectively. So this sounds great on uh, organic farming processes are going to give you a healthy biodiverse soil. However, when you look at the rules for organic farming, natural pesticides are allowed. And, and this is strange. This is a strange dichotomy. So why are natural pesticides somehow better than synthetic pesticides? All pesticides are toxic. That's how they work. And how they got there doesn't have any bearing at all on their safety. This is another um, case of the idolization of nature, which I've talked about in previous podcasts, that seems to be uh, rampant in the green uh, community. Now, the biological activity of a chemical is purely a function of its structure. It has nothing to do with the origin, uh, whether it came out of an animal or a plant or a lab. You can make the identical chemical, and that's mainly how laboratory workers and chemists get their inspiration is by looking at things that they find in nature. It's very difficult to make these things up wholeheartedly from nothing. Most chemists who are making these pesticides are taking them from nature and 
purifying them and mass producing them. So that's really a, a poorly implemented uh, solution, if you asked me, in the organic uh, way of doing things. And in fact, uh, as a pet peeve of mine, the term organic is has been misappropriated by the organic farming movement. Of course, if you've ever taken chemistry, you know that organic means it's a molecule that contains carbon. And in fact, if you look at the pesticides that are uh, available for use, uh, many of the pesticides in organic farming are actually inorganic chemicals like copper and copper sulfate. And many of the uh, modern pesticides that we use in modern farming are uh, actually organic molecules. So funny uh, reversal there. So one key to having biodiverse microbial ecosystems in the soil is that you should rotate your crops. And this then supports different types of microbial uh, communities and keeps the, uh, the, the soil healthy. And this is not happening uh, when you uh, grow repeated monocultures of corn and soy, like is often done to support the food processing industry or the processed food industry. But this is not uh, something that you can lay at the feet of GMOs. This is has been uh, a factor of um, farming for quite some time. In fact, even traditional farming has used monocultures and people... Uh, you know, grow large fields of a single crop, a single species. And this, uh, if you do this again and again, it's bad for your soil. And the reason they do this is it's easier to harvest a single field of a single crop. Uh, if you have multiple crops planted in the same field, it's really hard to treat them and harvest them. So this doesn't fall at the feet of GMOs. And it's a good a practice for both traditional and organic farming. So, one thing to note on another thing to note on organic farming is between 1990 and 2001 over 10,000 people fell ill due to foods contain, contaminated with pathogens like e coli bacteria and many of these sicknesses were due to organic foods and that's because organic foods tend to have higher levels of pathogens on them and the reason for the higher pathogen prevalence is probably due to the use of uh, manure exclusively instead of artificial fertilizers, uh, as many pathogens are, are spread through fecal contamination. Conventional farms often use manure too, but they have other options and sterile uh, fertilizer from a, from a production facility is one of them. Now, the other problem with these, of course, is, there, is the environmental impact of the uh, fossil fuels burned to make all of these synthetic fertilizers. So I think there is a, a case to be made to uh, limit the use of synthetic fertilizers and using uh, compost and uh, manure as much as possible, but uh, irradiating them and sterilizing them uh, to prevent uh, pathogenic uh, contamination. So my message on organic farming is to beware of greenwashing because not everybody is uh, using it not to achieve the goals, but maybe using uh, the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law and not achieving what you really want. It's, and it's very possible to do that. And uh, just because it's organic doesn't mean it's good. So I want to go into a little bit more detail on GMOs. GMOs 
uh, are living organisms whose genetic material, the DNA uh, code that programs what the cells build, has been artificially manipulated in a lab through genetic engineering. And this allows scientists to create combinations of plant, animal, bacteria, and virus genes that just don't occur in nature th or through traditional crossbreeding and uh, methods and evolution. Most GMOs that are available on the market today have been engineered to withstand the direct application of herbicide or to produce an insecticide in the plant itself or to be immune to a, a virus or, or fungus. Others have been engineered to be more nutritious and provide uh, a health benefit. Because GMOs are novel life forms, biotechnology companies have been able to obtain patents, uh, and governments have given them this right uh, to incentivize this, this research. Uh, and these patents control the use and distribution of their genetically engineered seeds, for example. So genetically modified crops, therefore, do pose a serious threat to farmer sovereignty and to the national food security of any country where they are grown. Effectively, farmers who uh, use these genetically modified seeds are licensing the organism from the producer and do not have the right uh, to propagate the seeds and grow them, and they could end up being sued if they do that, and this happens a lot. Um, so solutions need to be put in place to protect the right to food of very poor countries and make sure that they aren't uh, monopolized uh, by the uh, system uh, that supports the patenting of the food and supports the innovation and research that allows uh, advances in GMO technology. Now, anti-GMO groups are very concerned about a lot of things associated with GMOs. One of them is uh, that Roundup use is skyrocketing in Roundup-ready GMO crops. And these groups assert that this is increasing the amount of toxic chemicals in the environment. Now, as I've said on other uh, podcasts, uh, the dose makes the toxin. Anything can be toxic if you get it in the right dose. Now, the active ingredient in Roundup is a chemical called glyphosate. Glyphosate works uh, to kill weeds or any green plants by blocking a critical growth pathway that's found only in green plants. Roundup Ready plants are genetically modified uh, with the insertion of a gene from agrobacterium that was found to be immune to, this, to the uh, glyphosate. So how dangerous is Roundup and glyphosate? Well, this is something that may be a, a topic of a future uh, podcast, but this is also a very controversial topic. Um, this listed as a probable carcinogen, um, but I don't think the science supports that. In fact, all the animal studies that I could find that were um, reproducible, at least, in the largest animal studies, suggest that Roundup uh, or glyphosate is about 40 times less toxic than caffeine uh, in terms of uh, its uh, biological effects on animals. And we freely ingest uh, caffeine in pretty large quantities, well above the safety levels that would be uh, expected in, in orders of magnitude more uh, than we uh, would ever get of Roundup from, from eating uh, food sprayed by this. In corn, soybeans, and cotton, increased Roundup use has effectively replaced more toxic compounds that were being used for herbicides. And so 
Roundup Ready crops have actually reduced the overall toxicity of herbicides being applied to crops. And this is because Roundup and glyphosate is probably the least toxic herbicide available on the market. Roundup resistance has transferred uh, to certain weeds through the pollen of Roundup Ready plants. And opponents claim that this has been due to selection pressure by uh, increasingly uh, spraying Roundup everywhere. However, the data from farm producers, as far as I can tell, suggest that diverse herbicides are still being used. And the selection pressure has actually decreased since about 2005. So Roundup is actually taking the pressure off of other herbicides uh, that were getting resistance built up in um, crops and weeds. And uh, this is good because Roundup is, is less toxic. Now, other things about genetics and GMOs. Genetic modifications allow production of highly specific proteins in each cell of the engineered organism. By altering their DNA, uh, what happens is that the cells then take this code that scientists have put into it and turn it into proteins. Uh, the cellular machinery will translate the code and take amino acids from the organism and build them into these long chains. And these amino acid chains then fold up on themselves through electrostatic interactions amongst all of the bases. And the shape of these molecules effectively means uh, that they will bind to certain uh, other molecules. And that makes them specific to uh, a particular interaction. Now, traditional farming practices have evolved from the use of broad-spectrum pesticides and toxins, which kill a lot of things, to become much more specific. Modern farming with GMOs allows selection of a much more targeted attack on uh, certain uh, pests. Interestingly, as I said, organic farming uses these inorganic toxins and fungicides, whereas uh, GMOs use organic compounds all the time. According to the National Center for Food and Agriculture Policy, the top two organic fungicides, copper and sulfur, were used at a rate of 4 and 34 pounds per acre in 1971, respectively. In contrast, the synthetic fungicides only require a rate of 1.6 pounds per acre, so less than half the amount of the organic alternatives. Canadian scientists decided they were going to pit um, reduced-risk organic and synthetic pesticides against each other in controlling a problematic pest, the soybean aphid. In this study, they found that not only were the synthetic pesticides more effective and faster means of controlling the aphid, the organic pesticides ended up being more ecologically damaging, causing higher mortality in other non-target species like the aphid's predators. So this is a risk of greenwashing. Again, the goals of organic food are, are, well, are well said, I think, in most cases, but the methods that they allow do not get you there. And GMOs actually can get you to the goals of organic food production faster. Another um, thing that's genetically modified uh, is the BT trait. This is basically an insecticide gene 
that's been genetically inserted into corn and other crops so that the plant cells produce it directly. Now, Bt comes from Bacillus thuringiensis. I'm sorry about my pronunciation. It's a protein that's created by a bacterium, and when an insect eats it, it attacks their guts and, and kills them. It's been used, it's been isolated and used for decades as an effective insecticide on broccoli, on plants. It's been sprayed on reservoirs to control mosquitoes. Uh, people, you know, have, therefore, it's gone into the water. People have eaten it. Bt is only toxic to insects. There is no known effect on animal on mammals. Uh, it's just a protein. It breaks down in the gastrointestinal tract. It's been tested on people who have eaten mega doses of this protein with no ill effects. It's just another protein to people. Uh, we break it down. We use it to build up our muscles. Critics, however, have raised safety concerns about modifying plants to produce this in their cells. This is, I mean, it seems kind of scary, right? You've got a plant that's producing pesticide in all of its cells. You can't wash this out. This is part of the plant now. So what does that mean? Well, um, critics have said that some of the changes to the protein that were made to make the plants uh, express it in high enough quantities that it's going to kill plant, uh, insects means that the, the actual protein being uh, delivered isn't natural. It's not been uh, tested through the laboratory of nature, so its safety is unknown. So any of these changes should be subjected to long-term chronic animal testing, as would be done for uh, small molecule chemical pesticides, which can go from your gut to your blood quickly. But the difference is that these are large molecules that are broken down in our gut. And the focus should be on whether the modifications fundamentally alter the structure and functional properties of the protein to a degree that it affects the safety of these proteins. And so you can make arguments through analogy, but a certain amount of care is needed if you're going to be eating these things a lot. And when you think about um, how evolution changes proteins in our normal foods, we don't have to retest each plant uh, or each uh, animal that we eat because it's had a um, mutation in its germline. Uh, this always happens. This happens in every generation. There are mutations in DNA, and each animal has its own unique proteins that it's going to be producing, and very, very few of them are toxic changes to something from something that's safe to something that's toxic are extremely unlikely uh, if it's a couple base pairs. The big changes occur when you have an offset in the DNA where you take out a letter and it suddenly is coding for a completely different protein and, and through luck then this completely different protein has got a completely different form uh, than the original one and who knows what it could do. But that's not what's happening here. They're just changing a few of the amino acids in the chain, which slightly change its uh, binding energy and how, how well it does its job effectively. So, as I said before, protein macromolecules uh, that come from genetically modified uh, foods are degraded typically by the digestive enzymes of the GI tract into small peptides and individual amino acids to facilitate absorption in the blood and distribution to our cells to help us grow.
The ingestion of proteins has not been shown to be carcinogenic uh, or mutagenic or teratogenic. It doesn't seem to cause problems. Mice have been fed megadoses of this BT protein uh, at levels that would be the same as a human uh, eating 900,000 kilograms per day of BT corn uncooked. And this is obviously going to be a problem because, wow, corn just goes through me. Um, but it's not because of the BT, right? <laughs> so after all this, it is unclear if uh, genetically modified crops actually increase their yield over traditional crops or traditional varieties. Um, however, they've decreased the yield variance. So what this means is you're more likely to get a stable yield year after year using genetically modified crops because they're less susceptible to environmental upsets and, and uh, pests, for example. However, the genetic modifications, because the plant is making this novel protein, it takes energy from the plant to make this protein that we've inserted into it, and that can act as a drag on the maximum growth rates. So you may not get the most uh, in the maximum years, but you'll get a much smoother output, and that's better for controlling hunger and for farmers to plan their, uh, their livelihoods. But then there's still risks. What about unintended effects of these genetic changes? GMOs can be planted on more than 40 million hectares across six continents, and something some unintended side effect could be disastrous. And I think this is where some of the rational fear comes from in GMOs. How much testing is enough? Obviously, a strong testing regimen and judicious approach is suggested. We don't want this to be the Wild West where any person in a lab can throw a, a fish gene into a tomato and say, boom, fixed. You need to test this thing. <laughs> But what is the best balance between benefit and safety? Well, there has been a group that have addressed this, the North Atlantic Salmon Conservation Organization, with more than 12 member countries, have agreed on a precautionary approach to introduction of genetically modified Atlantic salmon. And here are the principles that they put forward in their agreement. One, the lack of full scientific certainty should not be used as a reason to put off management efforts. Two, Reference points should be established to help determine desirable situations and undesirable impacts. For example, limit reference points such as a maximum percentage of GMO seed in a shipment and target reference points such as reduction in the use of pesticides. Three, action plans should be identified, agreed on, and implemented when the limit reference points are approached or when adverse impacts are apparent. Four, priority should be given to maintaining the productive capacity of the resource or ecosystem. Sustainability, it's very important. Uh, you don't want to damage that. Five, the impacts should be designed to be reversible within the time frame of two or three decades. And this is including on how you introduce it into the environment. And then six, the burden of proof should be placed according to the above requirements and the standard of proof should be commensurate with risks and benefits. And this seems like a very logical and balanced approach to, to monitoring the risk. GMOs really aren't that different from 
long-term breeding programs and selective breeding and cross cross breeding programs that are part of that have been part of traditional agriculture for a long time. It's just a little bit quicker and a little bit more efficient. But now seed patents. This is the this is a thorny issue. Seed patents incentivize innovation and research. However, they pose the thorny issue of potentially depriving people of the right to food. Expensive designer seeds may price small producers out of the market and, and result in an, a monopoly of uh, factory farming. And this could drive uh, traditional uh, farmers out of the market in, in poorer countries. It is necessary, I think, for legislation to protect our right of access uh, to farmers to propagate their seeds. And this is the heirloom seed projects. In the past, um, science worked on developing seeds as a good for all people. And uh, the new uh, seed science for profit and patent is, is kind of diametrically opposed to this uh, more traditional approach where seed improvements were, were, were given out to all. So my opinion is that GMOs, when used judiciously, have great promise to stabilize crop yields and address nutritional deficits in developing countries. The uh, golden rice variant was developed uh, to uh, create uh, vitamin A in rice, and this is a way to prevent uh, blindness in uh, poorer countries uh, where vitamin A deficits can uh, cause that. So I think there is a lot of promise to mixing the uh, processes and goals of organic farming with the uh, efficiency and targeted approach of GMOs uh, used judiciously. And so I would like us all to work together towards a rational view on food. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please consider visiting my patron page and becoming a patron of this podcast at patron.podbean.com/slash/the-rational-view.